0: This podcast is sponsored by PAX. Whether on water, on land, or in the air, PAX bags are both versatile and flexible backpacks that are perfectly suitable for your requirements in the most demanding of environments. PAX bags are highly regarded due to their exceptional performance in pre hospital and in critical care environments. Renowned for their durability, they endure harsh conditions while providing rapid and reliable access to essential kit. So their well-organized compartments and customizable configurations enhance efficiency in high-stress situations. Pax bags are designed with infection control in mind and are easy to clean and disinfect. The highly visible colors and reflective strips add quick identification and adherence to quality standards assuring reliability. The versatility of Pax bags caters to a diverse EMS providers but also delivers vital equipment and durability and ease of use for pre-hospital critical care services globally. I've used PAX bags in a number of critical care situations, and they're absolutely excellent. Please see the show notes for further details. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. So, welcome to 2024 with the podcast. We've kicked the new year off with a new hosting team. So, there's going to be five different hosts now, um, all from a vast array of experience and indeed um, backgrounds. And that's what that's going to do is expand out the guest selection, expand out the perspectives on the podcast as well. So, when I started this podcast, I really wanted there to be a platform for different voices. And that's exactly what we're going to do in 2024. And we're going to start this week actually with. With Alec Wilding's uh, perspective and indeed um, fantastic interview with uh, Ben Mackenzie and that's just about to come up now we've also got a new image for the podcast uh, a new thumbnail and that's thanks to Sylvia Eagles so thank you to Sylvia for designing a new fresh image for the podcast and finally we're going to do a we're going to start with a um, early access subscription model for additional content so we're still going to produce free content every Monday at 5 a.m. Uh, GMT is uh, going to drop a new episode which is f- uh, in absolutely free of charge and we are going to do an early access subscription model for additional content to this uh, and that will become apparent as the as the year carries on. But what we still want to do is bring you subjects and indeed guests which are subject matter experts in their field of practice and just informative content, content which is really engaging and indeed that you learn from as well this next episode uh, that alec has recorded is probably one of the most important episodes we've hosted on the podcast um it's extremely moving and uh, ben mckenzie dr ben mckenzie talks candidly about his 15 year old son that died from uh, life threatening anaphylaxis it's a powerful episode um you will learn a lot from the episode and it's a really important conversation it's important to have these types of conversations on the podcast it's just worth bearing in mind that you should still practice um, the algorithms and indeed the treatment uh, protocols in your service. So we are advocating this the protocol and indeed this approach, but, uh, but it's prudent to stay compliant within the framework and guidance within your service. Please do enjoy this profound uh, episode with uh, Alec Wilding and Ben McKenzie welcome back to the pre-hospital care podcast Um, in this
1: episode i'm joined by dr ben mckenzie Uh, ben has been a mixed consultant in both adult and pediatric emergency medicine in victoria australia for over 15 years he's also spent considerable time as a director of emergency medicine training and as a retrieval specialist in 2021 ben's 15 year old son max passed away following an anaphylactic reaction following max's death ben started a phd in resuscitation algorithms which led to the creation of the amax 4 model of care for anaphylaxis and asthmatic emergencies his campaign is causing waves in the critical care community around the world and is challenging current guidelines on resuscitation for this unique group of patients welcome to the podcast ben thanks alec it's
2: really nice to be with you and thank you for inviting
1: me on yeah thanks very much for your time and really really keen to uh to get into it so um Ben, would you mind starting us off and telling us a little bit uh, just about the epidemiology of anaphylaxis?
2: Yeah, so I thought I might just walk everyone through um, anaphylaxis. A- anaphylaxis is super common, uh, and um, as as you and I, uh, like we're, we all know, someone who um, has uh, you know is at risk of anaphylaxis uh, in in Australia and the UK, it's one kid in every classroom. So if you are looking at the paediatric uh, incidents uh, or prevalence, and that, that that's what it is. So it, it's never very far from our own personal worlds, and um and that trans that uh, high number translates to our work, right? In 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 emergency care, it, it, it's common. Now, in terms of actually giving you formal stats, it it, it becomes a little bit difficult. I mean, depending on uh, whether you're paediatric or adult. Uh, and also how you define anaphylaxis and I think this is one of the really important things on that that I'm talking about on 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 this sort of journey is saying that anaphylaxis is just a subset of this uh, uh, IgE mediated reaction or type 1 hypersensitivity or acute systemic allergy whatever you want to call it Um, anaphylaxis is just the severe part which really involves airway breathing circulation and we even get a bit muddled because we say oh if it's the long gastrointestinal symptoms, we call that anaphylaxis too, according to the World Allergy Organization. So uh, what I try to do is say everyone don't stress too much about uh, the definition of anaphylaxis. If someone's been exposed to something and they've got acute onset of uh, allergy symptoms, whether that be, uh, you know, diffuse skin redness or uh, oropharyngeal uh, mm-hmm. symptoms of itch and 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 feeling like your throat's closing over, or or to to the you know airway breathing circulation type symptoms that we all worry about, it's it's a spectrum from from itch to death, and uh, and that's really important and. Um, eh, And so not not all allergens are created equal. So if you eat a a tiny, if you're allergic to cashews and you eat a tiny bit of cashew and you just get really itchy and your mouth gets really itchy out of that, that's, you're you're at risk of dying from anaphylaxis next time you have it. And we know that people who die from anaphylaxis, almost all of them have had a previous reaction. Um, And most of them know that they're allergic. So often, um, yeah, I think when we're talking about anaphylaxis in a general concept, that's the most important thing. It's a spectrum. Anaphylaxis is like the severe end, um, but we need to appreciate that even the small reactions are important to recognise because then those people need follow-up and they're risk-managed. I don't know. That's a, that's a roundabout answer, but I, hope, I think that's important concept.
1: No, definitely. And you talk about this spectrum, Ben, it's, um, it's much more than just a description, isn't it? I I know from your lecture um, series, there's a Delphi study in America, is that right, where they formally categorised this spectrum. Um, So it's much more than a, a description, is that right, from from what we might typically think of as mild to life threatening anaphylaxis? Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it's totally a spectrum. And what we're actually trying to do so, in one of my uh, registry projects that I'm working on in my PhD, we've actually developed uh, a, a matrix where you tick the box according to airway symptoms, breathing symptoms, circulation system, gastrointestinal uh, skin, et cetera. And you just tick the box of severity. And we've, uh, because there's so many grading systems, but what you actually want to do is capture the reaction. Um, And if that's pure asthma, bronchospasm symptoms, then that's really important to know because uh, we want to be able to study that and understand how much impact that is. So it's really about describing the symptoms. And uh, um, yeah, because then if you just say it's anaphylaxis, then you lose this whole amount of meaningful uh, description uh, when you hand over to to the hospital or you hand over to your colleagues or whatever, Or, or you want to research and
1: study it and then um, i know anecdotally these uh these life-threatening presentations they're they're typically quite rare aren't they um that's that's anecdotally but i know from the data as well is that is that true but um <laughs> generally cases of food allergies are on the rise certainly in the uk um does this mirror the picture in australia and and what's the latest thought behind the rising cases um it, in most industrialized
2: countries the incidence are oh, that it, it's becoming more common uh We don't really know why that is. In Australia, in allergy circles a decade ago, there was a push to not introduce allergens early in childhood, and now there's a push to introduce allergens much earlier in in infancy to see if that is actually part of the problem or, you know, this hygiene hypothesis that we live too cleanly and um, it's, the reality is we just don't understand. And now that we're in Australia, we're introducing things, uh, allergens more early. It's just shifted the first anaphylaxis or allergy presentations to a much younger age group. Will that translate to less allergies as they get older? We don't know. So we're still in the process of sorting that out. But um, in terms of, it it is worth pointing out that deaths from anaphylaxis uh, are rare and, um, and, There's a few reasons behind that. One is everyone tries really hard not to get exposed because the main treatment uh, is allergen avoidance uh, and our healthcare systems are really good and there's availability of EpiPen. So we've put in all these processes where we address food labelling or even for the insect venoms we use desensitisation to to bee and wasp venoms so, so we try all of these things to really try and keep the mortality rate low. So the mortality rate is low, but that is not just a passive process. That is because everyone's working bloody hard to keep everyone safe, and it takes a community to to do that properly. Um, but it might be a good chance. I don't, I don't know if this is the um, the, the the right time, but it, it it's kind of um, important to say one, it's rare, but and also. The one thing that happens with anaphylaxis is we get lulled into this false sense of security because uh, that the reality is that 90% of acute allergy or anaphylaxis cases need zero or one dose of intramuscular adrenaline. So that's nine, nine times out of ten you're going to give someone a dose of adrenaline and they're going to be fine. And then 10% of cases in emergency departments end up getting two doses. Uh, and then a subset of that 10% end up getting more than one dose and it's smaller, it's less than 3%. And then the number that go to ICU are smaller. So in adults in Australia, there's only 500 ICU admissions per year uh, in, in, that, you know, stay sick and, and uh, end up having to go to intensive care. So that pointy end spectrum is really rare, but actually that there are, these people are often really young, healthy and if you can keep them alive for eight hours, they're going to walk out of hospital the next day or the day after. And that's what the data in Australia shows is that in ICU admissions, they don't stay in ICU for very long, almost all of them, because if you've intervened appropriately and given the brain oxygen and blood pressure, then th- those people get better. The anaphylaxis curve only goes for four hours or, uh, and sometimes a little bit longer, but it's short-lived. And if you can keep them alive during that time, then they're fine and they're back to normal and they're out the door the next day or the day after. So ICU admission is, is very short, usually less than 48 hours. Um, so it, it's worth noting that the sick cohort are rare, but if you do a good job, they're totally, you know, it's reversible like these are people who'll be back to normal if you if you can manage to keep them alive for that short period of time
1: and i think that's such a such a key point is that that you know early recognition early management early treatment and i think you know we'll get onto the algorithm in a bit and i think that's that's easily one of the standout and this is for the the very sickest end of the spectrum but even then at that point with um, really good aggressive management as exactly as you said you know b- beautifully illustrated there this this is um something that could be really easily reversed Um there's there's been some high-profile deaths due to anaphylaxis in the uk recently um why do you think that healthcare p- practitioners often under triage these initial anaphylactic presentations um, and how fast can these more presentations become life-threatening um and also i know from your lecture series you have talked a little bit about hypoxic brain injuries being silent um, and we need to be looking for the cues so again another question would be what what are the cues all kind of blended into one
2: yeah so i think um uh so it, in terms of uh the severe end of anaphylaxis i think what the the cue needs to be uh so, so i think just before we started the podcast Alec we were talking about the difference between asthma and anaphylaxis and um it, it it's probably important to a, a couple of things here one, one is that anaphylaxis in food allergy is almost always a respiratory death um that the the, the the best and most robust data actually comes from the UK from a chap called Richard Humphrey, who published 24 years ago. Now he published uh, the the mechanism of cardiorespiratory arrest in uh, the UK Fatal Anaphylaxis Registry, and he he basically got a picture of what happened to these people, and all of the food allergy people died from either airway edema or bronchospasm. Um, now, in terms of your question about how quickly that occurred, um, it, it's always within the hour, almost always, um, but it, it, it's, it, you know, symptom onset is that, uh, you know, rapid, but 15 to 30 minutes, things can come unstuck. You, you can be um, arrested from a food allergy uh during that time in terms of stings if you're going to arrest uh from a wasp or a bee sting then that's often much quicker uh so that's sort of zero to 15 minutes um and the same with intravenous uh uh drugs in anesthesia that's the, you know that's usually a couple of minutes before you get onset of severe symptoms and you know up to 15 minutes um before arrest so but you you know it, it's kind of how quickly do these things, if you're a paramedic and you're going to a bee or WASP anaphylaxis, if you get there and the patient's still alive, you're probably going to keep them alive because they haven't collapsed and lost their output and become acidotic. And um, so they're either going to live or die kind of thing. Their blood pressure is 60, you're going to give them an adrenaline It's going to work out. Uh, whereas if you, but with the... The the asthma ones, the food ones, who have got this airway edema, they've usually got time to call for help and know what's going on, and um, paramedics might often arrive as the wheels are falling off, um, because you've got time. So the insect ones are probably going to die before you get there, but these food ones are going to die on you, almost, uh, if they're going to die and and be in that category. So... uh, how quickly can that happen in front of your eyes? 15 minutes. And, you know, and that's what happened to Max, and we can talk about that. Um, so that's how quickly it happens. And why do we underestimate it? Well, it's because we're so used to it getting better with minimal treatment, um, and the severe cases are rare, but there'll be someone listening to this podcast who it'll happen to, and they've got the opportunity to save someone's life. And uh, so, you know, that's what we do. We always prepare for the rare situations, uh, um, you know, especially these people are often young and uh, got their whole lives to lead.
1: Thanks, Ben. And um, I know you, you, you touched on it there and I think there's probably be, um a really good time to um to tell to share Max's story. And um I just want to say that um I can't I can't begin to imagine what it's like to to lose a child. I think it must take an incredible amount of courage to do what you're doing to, you know, regularly share your story and tell everyone. Um about what happened, but um, it's incredibly compelling for healthcare practitioners such as myself to to hear the other side and, and a, a reason to remember why we all do what we do and um, to reflect and so that we can be better. Um, but would you mind um, sharing what happened to Max?
2: Yeah, I can, and it it, it is really hard. And um, my heart goes out to anybody who's lost a child. It's um, it, It's a special type of pain. <laughs> Um, so what happened to Max is um, so 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 Max was a healthy 15 year old kid. He was awesome. He totally loved life. he was getting involved in everything at school. he was doing competitive sort of flat water kayaking. he loved it. he had a great group of friends and uh, he he died from anaphylaxis and his fifteen year old friends had to lower his coffin into the ground and that is something and you know we, are that is really hard for, for those boys, but they're incredibly brave. Um, so Max was at his grandma's house and he ate some, uh, you know, apple crumble, which had some ground walnuts in it, and he ate it because it, it was from some catering that his grandma's business had cancelled or had bought home. Um, so, so. Uh, she, she gave it to him and, and he ate it and, you know, rapidly he got symptoms and he, he he's had some mild reactions before, like every other anaphylaxis death, he's had some mild reactions. So he, but his asthma, his manifestation was just asthma as well as some itchy eyes. And he had some tummy tightness, but for all intensive purposes for the paramedics who arrived, he just had asthma. And when they, there was a, a paramedic crew that was an instructor and, and a, a graduate paramedic who was in their first week of work and they attended Max and they said, Max, it looks like you've got asthma because he had that prolonged expiratory phase. We've all seen it before. And he said, no, no, this is too quick. Uh, uh, the, the, this is uh, anaphylaxis. And he wasn't sure whether it was the apple crumble because didn't have labels on it. it. It's But then what happened was So he told everybody the diagnosis uh, and he wasn't unwell. In fact, his first oxygen saturations were 97%, but then over the next half an hour in the care of paramedics at at his grandma's house, he became progressively and linearly hypoxic. So shortly after his sats were 97, then they were 93, then they were 88, then he was needing oxygen and they stayed 88 and then they went to 83 and... Um, there's in Australia in Victoria we have this system where uh, paramedics can call for the intensive care paramedic to come and do some backup, but you can't intubate as an intensive care paramedic unless there's two intensive care paramedics, but they drive in solo vehicles, um, and so it, 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 there were some logistical problems, uh, and, it, and it took um, thirty minutes to a simple extrication and get out to the ambulance and in the ambulance on the way to hospital max said uh, he, he yelled with his mum in the front seat um, said he uh, i'm gonna die uh, which is a really common thing for people who have got severe asthma to say because they know that they can't breathe and they're gonna die and so uh four minutes from the hospital he he said he was going to die, and he became unconscious and um, had a brief hypoxic seizure, a brief episode of bradycardia, which got better with mask ventilation in the back of the ambulance. So when he arrived in hospital, he was hypoxic. He was GCS3. Uh, he may have been having some uh, hypoxic seizure activity, and the first SATs reading was 43%, um, and that had been probably going for five or six minutes. Uh, so there's this opportunity now, um, you know, it, it, we can talk about all the opportunities for escalating care pre-hospital, if you like, or we can talk about what happened in the emergency department. The emergency department's very straightforward. You know, you're faced, this is what the AMAX4 algorithm is is uh, designed for. So if you have someone who's unconscious needing assisted mask ventilation from either uh, well from in, in anaphylaxis or severe acute asthma, which may be anaphylaxis because yeah, because they, they look the same at the beginning, um, then then that's when this algorithm applies, and it really requires a, an emergency tube that is rapid, and we can talk about that. So so that's what happened to Max, and so Max wasn't intubated for twenty three minutes. They gave the the emergency department uh, it was weren't sure what to do. He already had IV access from the paramedics. Then they decided to call a code blue and get the anesthetist down. And then the anest- and, and that all took fifteen minutes. They decided to get an adrenaline infusion. They gave him some intramuscular adrenaline. Uh, they gave him some midazolam uh, because they thought that that was for the seizure. Um, but they didn't make any efforts to intubate until he became. Uh, bradycardic and asystolic. And I think it's really important that we all are able to recognize what a hypoxic arrest looks like. And I'm sure we've all seen it where uh, you, you get someone who's hypoxic or got no blood pressure, and it's not VF usually that you get, it's just a sinus bradycardia. And we know that very well in pediatrics because we call anything less, a uh, heart rate less than 60, we call that a cardiac arrest. Uh, but it's the same for any young person or anyone who's suddenly, you know, got a heart rate of one hundred and forty and then suddenly becomes sixty. That's a cardiac arrest because they're not getting enough oxygen, um, and that's what happened to Max. So he's in in the emergency department for fifteen minutes. He's got a heart rate of one hundred and forty, and eventually the, he. Uh, their treatment fails and they start CPR for for bradycardia and then all of a sudden intubation is very difficult and it's still unclear whether intubation was difficult because it was just suboptimal. There was a bit of vomit in the airway, that there was um, CPR going on or or whether or not he actually had some laryngeal edema and uh, it's unclear, but he certainly had no airway symptoms when he said I was going to die. Uh, six minutes before arriving in the ambulance, it was in a clear, clear panicked voice. So, so that's, so it's kind of fascinating thinking that you could be in a team where it takes twenty three minutes for someone who's in extremis, who needs clearly needs intubation, and intubation is indicated for a number of reasons, but yet it takes twenty three minutes to to achieve that, and that's just too long. And we need to be very clear as a critical care community that that's not acceptable, that we don't do that. And um, I think that leads into your next question, Alec. But, that, but that, that, that's what happened to Max. And so, Max, um, it, it, I arrived at uh, 16 minutes, oh, 16 or 7. Uh, uh, you were on duty, is that right, Bennett? A different
1: hospital, yeah, so and you uh,
2: attended. I was actually coordinating um, retrieval for the state of Victoria on, on that day, and I got a. F- panic text messages from tomorrow. And so a paramedic, one of my colleagues actually drove me lights and sirens to to the hospital, um, which was very kind and slightly against the rules. But <laughs> we, we drove there and I arrived and uh, I arrived to this scene where there was no team leader. The team leader had started CPR and and then, uh, so there was no team leader. I had to become the team leader. And after the third attempted at intubation, and I watched the, this person just pull out the tube after a failed, failed attempt, which was clearly esophageal. I said, "He needs a surgical airway." Uh, he needs a scalpel finger bougie, get the scalpel. And the nurse went and got the scalpel from a trolley at the entrance to the, not, not from the difficult airway trolley, but from the trolley at the entrance to the cubicle and walked across and and this intensive care consultant, made the cut, but then was on the head side of the bed, which is on the wrong side uh, because nobody was helping her. And so I actually had to walk around um, next to Max's neck and put my finger in in his neck and put the bougie in um, for the the training team. And, you know, I still have flashbacks about that to this day. And it's just not a father's job to direct an emergency airway and to to complete it when it's uh, not being done in the the best fashion. So um, I guess that's what happened to Max. He he, he lived for 13 days and actually he, he... uh, there's a particular pattern of hypoxic brain injury which is very predictable, and uh, it, you know he 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 was going to be very disabled, um, but he could still hear, he could still poke out his tongue when you asked him to, but then his brainstem instability meant that he's, he he batted out one one day, and that he had some CPR, but uh, he he died, and that that was 13 days later, and so we had to watch this poor Maxi just being. You know, in ICU, and realizing that his life was never going to be the same
1: again, and
2: yeah, it's pretty tough.
1: It's um, it's just just listen to you talk about it and go for it, Ben. It's it's you know honestly so powerful, and I think it's it's um, you know, it's it's almost uh um the epitome of tragedy. I really do think that. But if anything positive was going to come out of what happened to Max, I you know I think all of the work that you've done in the algorithm which we're going to get into now um and talk about um you know it's it's such a fitting tribute and there's so many bits to to the story there from from clinically from a clinical point of view um you know i think we can all sit here listening to what's happened the team that have been involved in in Max's in Max's care and think that, um, you know, this that this wouldn't happen to us. But the, the 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 simple cold light of day is that there has been a number of cases where, you know, very experienced clinicians and good teams who've got out of bed in the morning with no other intention than to try and help people have found themselves in these situations. And I think it's all the more reason why it's so important to pick it apart so that we can all learn from what's happened. So, um, yeah, I thank you again for for sharing your story, um. There's a lot of the obvious parallels here um, from from what you said are um the uh the now sort of infamous case of um, Elaine Bromley um and all the fantastic work that Martin Bromley went to again to share her story. Um um what what do you feel are the key learning points here from I don't know if there's been an investigation yet from the hospital's point of view, um or if the guidelines were followed in particular to that hospital, but um and I know this is obviously leading into your algorithm Um, and were there any immediate things that came out of the investigation?
2: Well, I think one of your, you know, the point that you just made is, is very important that nobody wants to come to work trying not, you know, with, without wanting to do their best, you know, everyone comes with the best of intentions. Everyone wants to do a good job and um, but things still go wrong. And that can be for a, a variety of reasons. And, um, but that is important. So when I had contact with Martin Bromley after after this, uh, we, we sort of had a discussion, and yeah, you know, he, he there's some pretty obvious parallels. In fact, uh, the, the attempts to intubate, uh Elaine were actually less than 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 Max's, and and so. Um, but 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 there is these extraordinary parallels. But it, it, it's perhaps in a different setting from elective theatre to um, emergency resuscitation. And but I think critical care has evolved over the last uh, you know decade or two, where we really do uh, where we do have the uh, potential to to you know deal with these cases and the capability to deal with these cases. It just requires a, a bit of forethought and, and, and some tools to use when uh, when you're in the thick of it and thinking's really hard. So we need something to fall back on because we're all a bit overwhelmed and there's lots of cognitive uh, things that we have to deal with. And I guess that's the thing to say about the AMAX4 algorithm is it's not actually anything new in terms of medical concepts. None of the drug doses or uh, n- none of it's anything that I've invented. I've just... Um, we're just trying to put it together for this, you know, unusual circumstance, which is really unique and needs a specific set of um, interventions to um, save somebody's life that is a little bit different to other situations, um, but it really can save someone's life. And it, there's this time critical human factor element to it, um, which needs uh integration into an algorithm so that's why there's a uh, you know that's why there's certain parts of the algorithm is to try and support humans to do to reach their full potential and the, the things do the things that they want to do which is exactly you know why we all come to work
1: um, yeah and um, and like i said i think it's a great piece of work we'll, we'll get into it when we can talk about the actual algorithm now and um, so um one of the one of the first parts of the AMAX four algorithm is um an advocation for IV adrenaline over the, the typical standard of care at the moment, which is intramuscular adrenaline. Um just to quickly, would you be able to clarify exactly who what group of patients that the presentation um I know you mentioned it earlier, but just to confirm um the which specific group of patients the algorithms designed for, and then just talk a little bit about the um, the, the changes to uh, drug route administration for adrenaline.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, the first thing to say about adrenaline is that, as we said before, adrenaline, ironed adrenaline gets you out of ninety uh, something percent of cases. So it gets you out of trouble. Um, but the important thing to know about intramuscular adrenaline, and these are based on studies that are, you know, with high pressure or adrenaline or auto injectors in well patients, is that it takes five to eight minutes to get peak adrenaline concentration. So it's not an instant thing. So if you're talking about someone decompensating over the space of 15 minutes and you're at 13 minutes and you give them IM adrenaline, that's what it's got. Not going to help you like get out of the situation because we're, you know we're really down to minutes in these situations um so remembering that i am adrenaline takes five to eight minutes in a in an unwell patient that may be much longer if you've only managed to get it subcutaneous then that'll never work because sub- we know subcutaneous adrenaline's uh, <laughs> kind of it's kind of placebo-like, and that's borne out in, in in studies where you measure adrenaline levels. So if just relying on IM adrenaline for these very sick cases, then we're in trouble. One, because it takes too long. Two, because absorption might be delayed in a sick patient and we have no idea. There's no data to, to tell us whether it is or not anywhere in the world. And three, it might have, we might have given it subcut and it might have been a short needle that we used and it wasn't a big long EpiPen needle into the thigh. And so we might not have as much adrenaline as we think we do. Um, and then if we're really trying to keep someone alive because they're saying I'm going to die, then we need something that's going to work instantaneously and that's intravenous adrenaline. And so that's where it comes from. Now, to avoid unintended consequences, I have, uh, because, you know, we don't want to cause harm with any algorithm, I have um, explicitly said that this algorithm is for people who are unconscious requiring bag mask ventilation, because then... If you're in that group and you've got anaphylaxis, you're in trouble. Like that's a disaster. You're, you're, you need every uh, help, every minute and and ounce of help you can get, and you need it now and not in eight minutes time. And uh, and so that's where the IV adrenaline dose comes from. The the, the the dose for this situation is one microgram per kilogram. Or if they've already had their bradycardic arrest, you can use the cardiac arrest dose. Um, but remember one microgram per kilogram is just 10% of the cardiac arrest dose. You have to give that 10 times before you even get to the, you know, the, the, the bradycardic situation. So um, particularly in young people, it, it's very well tolerated. In older people, IV adrenaline has historically been associated with some problems like AMIs and 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 intracerebral bleeds if given in the wrong dose in the wrong time. Um, but uh, The APLS, the the advanced paediatric life support course advocates, well, at least in Australia it advocates for one microgram per kilogram every 30 seconds to to 10 minutes, and and that's where that dose comes from. And it's a good dose to have up your sleeve um, uh, because you sometimes just need help on the end of the needle, and that's how you get help on the end of the needle.
1: And I I think it makes complete sense. It's, you know, I think I go back to my early days of paramedic training where we talk about absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion with all drugs. And, you know, I think um just to be, you know, really, really clear, it's for those unconscious patients requiring positive pressure ventilation, you know, they're they're crashing, they're hypoperfused. It makes complete sense that anything that you give intramuscularly just isn't going to cut the mustard. You know, whereas, you know, for any almost any other group of patient in that state, we would always give drugs intravascularly so um yeah i think it's you know it seems like it's such a simple sort of mind shift change but actually like um, again anecdotally i know that these patients respond and as you've already alluded to they respond so well to pharmacological input um we carry uh, intravenous subutamol in the uk and again like to you know see the the benefit that that has um uh, with these patients and you can you can know, really pull them back from the edge um Thanks, Ben. The other thing um, that's you know really clear, just looking at the algorithm, is there's a um there's a real push for um um I sort of not wanting to use the word aggressive, but in a positive way, it's it's uh, early requirement, recognition and requirement for intubation. And I think that's um it almost feels uh sort of strange in in the in the in the current or recent climate where intubation's sort of almost been de-emphasized, really. Um in certainly in the UK. Uh, practice um, and um, we're often taught in life-threatening asthmatic patients for example that it should only ever be a last resort because um, you know the, the, it's it seems like a, not just an extreme uh, intervention but potentially that it carries high risk and the patients then do less well perhaps because of the things that you've been talking about and again trying to get it within you know that hypoxic patient within a certain time frame And I think this is where the, algor- the, the algorithm is really good because actually it encourages practitioners to read between the guidelines and understand you know, there's a time for specialists to be specialists and, you know, need to do specialist skills. And I think that the algorithms for specifically critical care teams and resource teams in hospital, is that correct? This isn't a.
2: Well, it's for anybody who is capable of intubation and who feel, who would call themselves competent at intubation that that's what's for. So if you have that skill and you're competent at, at that skill, and that's part of your daily, uh, you know, job description, then then this algorithm is for you. And um, uh, I think it, you know that there's there's a couple of points to say about the algorithm that, that the reason uh, we, we touched on it before, the reason why intubation is um, emphasized is because anaphylaxis and asthma both need uh, high pressure ventilation if there's bronchospasm involved and that can only be achieved with a, a, a endotracheal tube with the cuff and an LMA just will leak and uh, a mask will inflate the stomach and uh, cause vomiting and which is catast- aspiration which is catastrophic so there's all these well-accepted reasons why a tube is so important in these situations and, and you're right that uh, I'm really glad that you've brought up this issue about uh, particularly in pre-hospital medicine where intubations be de-emphasised um but obviously it depends on what you put in the box of all of those studies that show oh there's not much difference but some of them show oh well you still the airway kind of fell out and we had to do something again and um so it you know there's still the definitive care when they hit the emergency department is a tube regardless of what happens pre-hospital but there are some people who need the tube um in that pre-hospital setting, and and this is one group, and uh, I guess the question is arises for your listeners who aren't intubating capable, and the only thing I would say is, you know, after reviewing quite a few cases, is um, if sometimes it's tempting to pass off the bag mask ventilation to. Uh, a junior person, or a fire, per, you know, uh, a fire department person, or whoever else uh, is responding to the emergency, but actually, that needs to be in in anaphylaxis and asthma. That actually needs to be the most senior person because it uh, it the oxygen is is the thing that's that that that's almost certainly causing the problem. And if it's just the blood pressure that's causing the problem, that's going to get better with your adrenaline as part of this Amax four, as the A part of the Amax four. But um. It, it is really important to, to do that quickly um, and, and it needs to be a tube and, and not anything else if you have that skill. And the the, the the second thing that you touched on is about the asthma cases um, where we're told there's this dogma that say you don't intubate asthma and that is absolutely true, 100% true. We don't intubate asthma if they're awake. <laughs> <laughs> they have to if they're awake i don't care what you do like you, <laughs> you, you can you can you try your niv subutamol infusion your magnesium what, what whatever's in your kit in your local guideline you're giving it to them and you're really hoping that they turn the corner and that you're going to get out of intubation because once you intubate them yeah look it is t- difficult ventilation um and, and and so we do everything we can but if they are unconscious and hypoxic that, that document does not apply. That is not part of this basket. That is a different situation. So now we're in a situation where actually the only thing that's going to save them is a tube. And yes, it is going to be difficult ventilation after that. And yes, we need a strategy about how to give small breaths um with high pressure so giving hard breaths with a bag but only making them small and letting expiration uh, occur so there's no gas trapping um and that's the x ex- part of extreme ventilation as part of the amex 4 algorithm but um it, it it really is a different that dogma about asthma is wrong categorically wrong to apply that to to an to a hypoxic unconscious patient um and so we just need to distinguish that as a as a critical
1: care community. And I think that's so. That's again, like like you sort of said, it's not. Um, you're almost not reinventing the wheel here with the algorithm, but actually, it's it's putting a clear emphasis on. You know, you know this this very specific subset group of patients um and you know and emphasizing the the absolutely correct and immediate interventions that are required um and i'll, I'll share the, the algorithm will go on the podcast on the web page i'd encourage everyone listening to have a look at it and um and go on the amax4 website as well but just to i know we jumped around it just to quickly run through it there so the amax4 stands for a is for the adrenaline so giving it intravenously one mic per kilo uh the m is for muscle relaxant um first and only attempt at laryngoscopy must be the best attempt. So everything that we were always taught, you know, to optimise the first attempts. um, A is for the airway. And this is the next bit that I was really keen to talk about again, because I think perhaps for some some people maybe reading it or looking at it um, outside of the critical care world, perhaps might feel that this is um, quite extreme, but there's a real push here and an advocation for if, you know, there's an inability to intubate first attempts, really is to be moving on to, front of neck and the thing that i really like about the algorithm is it puts in this this hard stop of four minutes um which is the last part of the algorithm i've not done a great job here there's we'll go through the x's in between as well um but the hard stop and the focus on um getting this airway and actually um moving to front of neck can you talk a little bit about that ben yeah, for sure. And don't worry about the algorithm. If you can't remember
2: what AMAX4 stands for, it stands for gives them adrenaline and intubate them in four minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> like that's it. So the, the max, you know, it's convenient that it's Max's name and but you know, it could have been anyone's name if they were named Max, but it's maximum four minutes. And those human factor, uh, th- th- those are two human factor things. So the muscle relaxant is to get you to commit, and say, look, I'm giving the muscle relaxant, we're doing this, and the four is to say, yeah, and I'm going to do it in four minutes. So that's the start and the end is really to get people to commit. So that's the human factor elements. But um, it, in terms of having just one attempt, uh, uh, I think that the best thing to do is uh, that the, these people are silently, their brains are, are dissolving and they're becoming Uh, disabled in front of you, but without the drama of bleeding or, you know, penetrating injuries or gunshot wounds, they're just silently dying and and their brain cells are silently. So they can't advocate for themselves. And if maybe if we just take one minute to get all of your listeners to um, just imagine a resuscitation scene where there's an asthma or anaphylaxis arrest, who's unconscious, who's just had a short period of mass ventilation and we've committed and given muscle relaxant and we're intubating them but we can't see the cords for whatever reason is that because there's vomit or because there's some edema we're just not it's just not happening for us today and on a different day in different circumstances it might have you know you can do it with your eyes shut but this particular time for whatever reason it's not working now the patient can't advocate for themselves they're totally in your hands and if we float above this resuscitation scene that we're visualizing and we look down from a few meters above and we just look at the patient and the patient's brain is going to start dying and let's just imagine what the patient would want you to do would they want you to keep having a few goes Or would they say, I don't care how you, you know, if it was Max, he would say, I don't care how you fucking do it, just do it. (laughs) He he would, yeah, you
0: know,
2: sorry to use the F word, but um, that's what he would say. And that's what you would say if you were the patient. And that's what I would say. And that's what anyone would say. I just want some oxygen, please save my life. And so if you can... And, and that includes cutting the neck. I don't matter what you do. I'm unconscious asleep. I, I like just do what you have to do. And so if we can just imagine what the patient would ask you to do if they could talk, and if we do that now so that in the heat of the situation, we already know what the patient would ask us to do, then I think that makes that decision a lot easier because uh, I think it, it's it's not a complicated procedure as long as you use your finger and get your finger in that sort of hard cage, then um, that hard cartilaginous cage, it, it's really a straightforward pr- procedure. Um, but knowing what the patient wants is really important because that's what we're there for. And um, uh, I think that's the nicest way to think about it. And and you've only got four minutes to do it.
1: I think that's great Ben Um, I really do and you know I think we often talk about um, sort of like the hallmark of a good clinician being someone who treats their patients as if they were their own family or be happy if they were to treat someone in your family type thing and you know from what you said there I'll go one further and I I think back to you in the um, in the research room with Max and how involved you became and ended up directing and leading on the 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 surgical airway for Max and I sort of think that you know that's how that's how we should be. We should almost be putting yourself ourselves in in a in a parent's or relative's shoes and and um and you know and and being confident and um getting on with what needs to be done. I guess there's a big emphasis here on the need for regular repeated training as well for these types of situations with less frequent presentations. Um
2: absolutely it's that high acuity, low occurrence situation that we sometimes talk about and uh, yeah, I've actually got this program that I've, you know, Rich Levitan, he's a good guy in the USA. He's uh, an airway guy uh, and he's made some models. And I'm trying trying to, uh, I think I'm going to spend money and buy every single emergency physician <laughs> in Victoria a model so they can do just that and that is practice and, uh, and do some research before and after. But, um, you know, that's one of my projects hopefully for this year. But, yeah, yeah thinking it's all about what we do beforehand you know practicing beforehand it's
1: and so it's just like yep we know what to do it's stem when the, when the time comes and recognizing these these cues you talk about it this um hypoxic brain injury like the the time is it's, it's so short and you know perhaps it'd be a good question to ask um why that time is so short but you've asked we talked about these cues and and you know obviously you've spent a lot of time researching and looking at other cases and um, particularly in australia there was another one that I, I remember watching from your lecture series could you maybe talk a little bit more about why the the time to hypoxic brain injury is so short in this patient group just to really emphasize the need for um for this hard stop four minutes but but also um the other cues things for practitioners such as myself and uh, likely people listening to be picking up on to be thinking this is the way that things are progressing yeah um so maybe the
2: the second question first that the, the way that uh, I think after spending a long time thinking about this, if you, if things are getting worse despite two doses of intramuscular adrenaline, then you should be prepared for escalating all the way to AMAX4. Um, and you might exit and things might turn the corner and you might reach the peak before um, having to intubate. But if, if things are still going after two doses of adrenaline, then you are like, get some help. Like, you just, that, that that's your cue. Uh, so hypoxia getting worse after two doses, blood pressure getting worse after two doses, agitation getting worse after two, you know whatever it is, uh, patient looking sicker um, after two doses, then um, that then, then that's that's a that's an easy cue, and of course. The people who get sick before then or you know, they, they've arrested just as you arrive or or whatever. There's lots of variations. But um as soon as people become unconscious, you know, that's when the clock starts ticking. And I know uh, this
1: Yeah. Sorry, Sorry, I was just gonna say I know for some other cases as well, and you touched on it as well, there's there's this it's it's really common that there's this um um like it's listening to the patient. Um I think it's um there's a almost I, I wonder sometimes if it's our own. Um, uh, wanting to reassure ourselves that we're perhaps um, not necessarily dismissive, like intentionally dismissive of what a patient says, um, but it's almost our like trying to reassure ourselves that the situation is okay. Um, when patients are trying to tell something, I know in Max's case, obviously, you know, it's, it's harrowing listening to you say what him saying that he felt he was going to die in the ambulance. But this is something that other is is quite common. Is that true? And a real a real cue for us all to pick up on to think, you know, this person's really sick. We need to. Um, get ahead of this now. To, totally. If someone says they're going to die, you need to believe them. Um, and that's,
2: you know, whether that's James Sindus, uh in Victoria, Max, MyMax, or even James Atkinson in the recent, the coron- coronial thing that's happening at the moment, he said he was going to die in the back of the ambulance. So no, it, it's very common. And if that's combined with uh, wheeze or, or hypoxia, then you know that that that's literally they're going to respiratory you arrest in you in the next few you know few minutes um probably uh the, the other thing is incontinence in, incontinence in um, particularly in anaphylaxis there was a good study done in australia by an emergency physician um, where which was emphasizing venom and, and blood pressure problems as as the the mode of deterioration but um incontinence is a sign that uh, yeah you know we're, we're not perfusing uh like our garden and, and or and our brains having this vagal reflex or, or whatever the mechanism is but uh yeah people tell you they're gonna die that that they say um they start sweating and they uh,
0: uh
2: got progressively worse vital signs and become incontinent all of those things mean they're about to arrest um so that's that that's quite useful um like- I think it's literally if someone became incontinent with anaphylaxis i'd be like i'd be you know getting close to being incontinent myself unless i had enough help to to to, to navigate what's about to happen is um,
1: that is it's that really old school mantra of like looking at the patient and listening to the patient and you know i'm, I'm i can imagine i only imagine the 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 ambulance crew um who were w- w- with max are in a similar situation and how there's there's always this um especially when you're new you know you're looking at the the monitor you're looking for almost changes in physiological signs or whether it's hypertension and things like this, but we know that they're such late late features and actually that these subtle cues where the time is everything will will pre- will present so much earlier um so I think it's great it's really really good stuff and there's some really really powerful stuff in there for people, yeah, I totally agree with you like I couldn't
2: say it better myself Well, were we were about to talk about something so <laughs>
1: uh, the um the the time to hypoxic brain injury. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. So what's really important to understand is that it's probably less than four minutes. Like if you think four minutes is too long, you're probably right because because um, that's one point of feedback I get, particularly from anaesthetists who have got tubes galore and ready to go. Um, but it's it's the fact that the, the reason you're unconscious almost certainly uh, is because you've got no oxygen. And so you've already deoxygenated your whole body, Um, and sure it might be a blood pressure problem in isolation if it was a venom thing and maybe but we don't know because they're unconscious and and uh, you can't be too sure so let's assume that it's hypoxia that's and they've deoxygenated the whole body including their brain um, which is completely different so to, to vf so you get a 50 year old man with classical vf their sats were 100 when they dropped dead, uh, you know, in the classical situation, assuming they're not already in pulmonary edema and all these sort of things. But, you know, their sats were 100. And if you bag mask them, you can, their lungs are working. And so, but but with the asthma thing, the bag masking is not going to suddenly make their oxygen better without some really high pressures. So um, it's really short. It's really, really short. There's some... I think it's just because, the, you know, that's the mechanism. There's some allergist conversation that maybe there's some mast cells in the brain or something that makes it quicker to have hypoxic brain injury. I, I don't think that's true. I think it's just a fact that you, know, you deoxygenate yourself um, and the time's really short then and parts of the brain... That have the highest metabolic rate die first, and that's the basal ganglia, which means you're quadriparetic, and and then it, it's invariably the hippocampus first, so you lose your memory first, and all, all of these things. Some of these things will come back if you if you just get in time, but uh, if you let it go, then it's permanent or it progresses to brain death, and yeah, it's um, it, it's really short, and you can't extrapolate all of those you know long cpr cases that you had a good outcome from like that's not this it's different you can't apply it and um and and it's really important to say that cpr is probably not going to help you're just circulating deoxygenated blood so it's the oxygen it's the abc approach that's going to help these people I'm not saying don't do CPR, don't get me wrong. Um, what I'm saying is do, do CPR, but don't let that get in the way of actually fixing the problem, which is uh, intubating people or giving them oxygen and adrenaline.
1: It's Yeah, it seems like such a, a you know, a common sense approach and what you said, and very much in the same um, sort of vein as uh, how we approach traumatic cardiac arrest, where it's, you know, correcting um, hypervolemia, oxygenation and tension um, and, you know, uh, sort of correcting those things first and not letting compressions get in the way because you know, generally if you're going to be doing compressions you're either um, yeah. pumping an empty heart or one with a tamponade or it's an obstructive pathology or they bled so fix those things first and then it, yeah it, it makes some sense yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. That, that, that's hitting the nail on the head. And so there's just these situations which need a specific algorithm. We know what to do in trauma. We just decompress everything and give blood volume and stop the bleeding. And the same in aspirin flexus. It's a specific thing,
1: and that's IMAX 4. And I guess as well, I'm, I'm perhaps speaking out of turn here, but having not unfortunately been in the situation where i've had to do any surgical airways but you know, you said that these are all relatively um typically young patients um so i'm assuming when it for for front of neck um it's assumed that most of them will have um relatively easy to landmark anatomy is that is that a true so yeah. do you think ben is that fair?
2: I, don't I, I don't know i'm sure there's um you, you, you know my my hope is that people will will extract extrapolate max four to any asphyxic arrest so if you're choking or you've given some sedation or you've tried to intubate and all of a sudden there's vomit and you can't see an airway you've, you've got four minutes because it's a, um, a you know a, a type of asphyxic arrest which is akin to asthma and anaphylaxis and so um, so I don't know that it will always be easy. I I, th- I think in anaphylaxis patients and asthma patients, it's quite often likely to be easy. But it's it, you know it like you say you need to practice it. But once you get the idea of just m- scalpel and if you um, you. you it's easy to get your finger in. So all you need to do is make a cut, whether it's, you well, know, I, I teach vertically and then uh, and then you make a stab in the cricothorid membrane and you put your finger in. And then once you've got your finger in, you can't you can uh, you, you can't feel like it's in the wrong place. And so, you know, you can poke your finger around and wiggle it around until you're in the right place, but you, you'll get there, I promise you. And, uh, <laughs> and but, uh, you know, this is assuming you've, you've, you've trained and understand the procedure. And, yes, it's a very rare procedure, right? It's 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 uncommon and um but that doesn't mean that it might not be you having to give it a go um you know on your next shift it's totally unpredictable when these things happen um but yeah so so don't be scared is the idea and if you've got multiple hands and someone else is trying to have a go at intubating at the same time that that's okay Uh, whatever you need to do to get the tube in if you need to improvise but you know the the high performing teams have got their um, their algorithm. Like you know uh, Sydney Hems I talked to, I felt like I was um, teaching to the converted. I know you do some some flying as well, like but um, yeah, you just have your mantra. What are you, what are you going to do? And you can have a you know twenty second checklist. And uh, if I can't see it, that I am going to move around and uh, you are going to cut. I am going to do this, and um, yeah, it's just about that pre practice. But don't be scared; it's not hard. It, like in the hole it's actually easier than intubating like it, like literally it's easier it's just like putting a, a hole in something and putting your finger in and putting a bougie along your finger if you can
1: yeah it, it's easy you often say to people that you know the hardest part of intubating is laryngoscopy getting a view in the first place right and if you can kind yeah. of remove that whole element of intubation um and you know an, an externally landmark and I, I remember someone really um um, somebody saying it's it's you know it should just be seen as another way of getting an airway, not that anyway I'm, I'm advocating a um a you know a gung ho approach to um performing surgical airways but in this group of patients if it's the thing that's needed, you know I really and listening to you, I think it's something that we should all be think, you know, all be ready, like you said, any day. Um really put the emphasis on training and positioning, making sure if you're going to be at the left or the right, who's in the passport, declaring it being an airway emergency um, and just cracking on. um, Yeah, I think it's all really good stuff. Um, um, I'll
2: just tell you one quick story and because I've talked to a lot of people and in Australia we've got lots of outback remote practitioners who deal with emergencies infrequently and I've had a couple of people actually say, Ben, look, I don't think I'd be able to intubate, you know, because I just don't do it that often, but I'd be more than happy to do a crack. (laughs) And I said, they." And they said, would you support that? I said, absolutely. <laughs> you know, if that's the way you're going to get an airway, you go for it. And like, it's just
1: a no brainer,
2: you know, and again, imagine what the patient wants, right? So the patient's there, you're above the patient. What is the patient asking for? <laughs> they don't care. They just want to be alive.
1: And that's, I think if your bat's against the wall and, you know, that's the fix is to oxygenate them, then, you know, it's kind of doing what you need to do. Right. And, and I, that's why I really, really like the algorithm, this hard stop for four minutes. And I really I think it's great. Um, just as we come into land, Ben, um, uh, finally, I'm just really, really keen to know what the feedback has generally been so far um, with the AMAX4 guidelines and whether or not there's been any positive outcome stories from practitioners that have used it. I know it's still relatively in its infancy, but um, like I said, I know that um, just through social media and lots of um, um, free access uh, med education, um, it's been something that's been uh, publicised and talked about a lot. Um, have you got any cases of when this has been used or feedback from people?
2: Yeah, I do. So, uh, look, I often, um, so it's made, so one of my old colleagues who uh, said, Oh, Ben, I did a, a cricothyroidotomy. It was an anaphylaxis patient, but, you know, his threshold for doing it and intervening very comfortably changed completely after doing some of the talks. Um, well, the, the, the first thing to say is that not one person has said, actually, what what you're saying is wrong it's because it's all accepted stuff it's just putting it together um it's just universally like everyone says yeah that makes sense what um and so it's made it into uh you know some of our pediatric emergency books in australia and emergency guidelines will be a textbook in uh shortly etc so so i think it's accepted and eventually I'll, i'll actually publish it Properly in a peer-reviewed journal, um, and but just to finish off, there there was this, uh, you know, Scott Weingart uh, runs a podcast in the US, and uh, one of his. Uh, listeners um, posted uh, an AMAX4 situation where where he said, I've never given so much IV adrenaline in my life and I intubated him and it was really hard. And um, and the dad was standing next to me, but um, the kid walked out of hospital. He was a 16-year-old boy, just like Max, and he walked out of hospital a couple of days later. So, um, you know, that's... And, and he said, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't have listened to the podcast. And so that... Kind of
1: was mission accomplished for me. I bet, and I, I as I said before, I can't think of a a, um, a more fitting tribute or legacy to Max. And um, you know, I really do commend you for your your courage and for the work that you put in in such a short, relatively short space of time. It's been you know two years since Max's death, and I think yeah, it's incredible what you've achieved. And um, yeah, I hope. Um, um in the same as in the states as other people that listen to this and take it back to their own systems um and yeah and cause us all a a, a an opportunity to reflect on on how we go about these things um to you know really come, overcome this um decision and team inertia that can happen in in these situations but um ben it's been brilliant to have you on thank you so much for your time and sharing your story um i really appreciate it and um yeah No, thank you, Alec, and to all of your
2: listeners and subscribers. Look, I hope everything goes well and, yeah, you know, I'm right behind you. Like, you know, I know you guys want to do a good job and, yeah, you do the most important job in the world, so never forget that. Thank you very much. Take care, Alec.
0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.